and that is a good thing, is it not? Okay, some of you are excited about it. That's okay. We'll get you more excited about it. I just want to get this out of the way. Who's excited for the Super Bowl? Okay, like five people. All right. Anybody rooting for the Niners? Okay. <laughs> Anybody rooting for the Kansas City Chiefs? Anybody not care? All right. That's what I figured. That's what I figured. This is definitely the most exciting part of my day. Sounds like it will be for you as well, so welcome. Will you please stand and join me uh, as we read God's word together? We are going to be in Romans chapter 12, and I'm going to read to us the first three verses, I'm sorry, the first two verses of chapter 12, and it's going to be the focus of our time today. It says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. This is the word of the Lord. All right, thank you. Go ahead and have a seat. I love reading scripture out loud together with everyone. There's power in that. So for the last six weeks, we have been looking at what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. That is our mission here at Foundation Church. And we've come to the conclusion as a team and as a church that there are three primary goals, to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did. That is the essence of being a discipleship, or a disciple of Jesus, rather. And this long-standing model of discipleship was actually not initiated by the church. I bet you probably, you know, unless you're a historian, you've studied that time period, you didn't realize that this is actually a model that came from different origins. An ancient um, uh, discipleship actually referred to anyone who was following any major religious leader or any major philosopher with the goal of adopting their pattern of belief and their way of life. The Greek word here actually for disciple is mathetaeus, and it means simply to be a student, a pupil, or an apprentice to a teacher. So that's really what it's talking about. It could be to anybody. It could be to any philosopher or any religious leader or any great thinker of the day. And in that time period particularly, that's what they did. That's how people learned. They became a disciple of somebody they wanted to be like. And so that's what we see here. Being a disciple of Jesus in Scripture was to become a student or an apprentice of Jesus, his way of life, his way of thinking, his way of living, and that's what we're studying. Their discipleship involved being with Jesus, meaning going wherever Jesus went, traveling with him all over the world where he was, it meant becoming like Jesus, living as he lived, acting as he acted. If you actually think about it, the more you spend time with someone, you kind of start to sound like them. The disciples were trying to even sound like Jesus, interestingly enough, okay? And then eventually this led to the ultimate goal was to become like Jesus so much that you could do what he did and go and make more disciples of Jesus. Jesus actually commissions us. He commissions his disciples, and he commissions the entire church in Matthew 28, going forward to go and make disciples. This is what it says. It'll be on your screen. I'm going to read to you Matthew 28, 18 through 20. It says, then 
Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So what we see there, and we've read this a lot over the last six weeks, Jesus is commissioning them to go everywhere, to go around the world. For what purpose? To make disciples of all types of people, training them, teaching them as apprentices to do what Jesus taught and to teach them how to live as Jesus lived. And then finally, they would be baptized into the church. That was their public declaration of their commitment to Jesus. So that's why Jesus talks about that. Actually, it's one of the reasons why we do a baptism service when we do it is because it's a public declaration of a person's commitment to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus. But the Great Commission is actually not the only place that we see these types of instructions from Jesus. We actually see it in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, we went through the Sermon on the Mount in the fall, so you're all extremely familiar since you're hanging on every word that we preach about. I know this. But I just want to reread it to you just in case. All right? So we actually see at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 19, this is what it says. It says, therefore, this is Jesus teaching the crowds. He says, therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. I don't want to be called that. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's Jesus leaning into the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And then he goes on, which is captured in three chapters in Matthew, but it was really this robust series of teachings that Jesus taught his disciples. And then he ends again with a similar but distinct warning. And you guys know this one because we've been reading this every week for the last six weeks. Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27 says this, Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock, which is where we get the name Foundation Church from. 26, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Now, Jesus' analogy of a house is your life. Jesus is saying, if you build your life on these teachings, then you will withstand the storms of life. But if you don't, then your foundation will be shaky and the storms of life will push you over, okay? And we don't want that. So the point is that discipleship to Jesus, or apprenticeship to Jesus, as we've been calling it, has been the primary goal of every Christian since Jesus' ministry on earth. That's been the primary goal, which is why it's so important that we study it and learn how to do it and encourage others to do it. Because Jesus' example is the perfect example of how to love God and love others, and we know that that's how Jesus summed up the entirety of the law. He said, the entirety of the law can be summed up in these two commands, love God and love people. 
okay? Now, being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did had this one common implication for every single person in Jesus' day and every single person who calls Jesus Lord going forward. And this is very important, so I want you to listen. The way a person thinks and lives will change as they apprentice to Jesus. Again, the way a person thinks and lives will change as they apprentice to Jesus. In Matthew chapter 4, we observe a very important command from Jesus. Verse 17 says this, from that time on, this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of God has come near. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, if you've been around the church, which a lot of you have, for any amount of time, then you've likely heard the word repent often, and it probably conjures up some mixed emotions, right? Depending on your tradition and where you came from, repent could be a scary word, but I just want to tell you, it doesn't have to be. In fact, I want to explain to you what it means. The primary word that we see here, the word in Greek is actually metaneo, metaneo, and it means this, to change one's mind or purpose. So when Jesus says, repent, because the kingdom of heaven is near, he's saying, hey, change your mind and change your purpose because the kingdom of God is near. That's what he's saying. So again, I go back to the phrase, the, the way a person thinks and the way a person lives will change as they apprentice to Jesus. And when Jesus declares, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near, it means that the apprentice must change the way that they think and the way that they act because Jesus, who is God in the flesh, we know this, has come to model for us, every one of us who decided to, to apprentice or disciple to Jesus, he's come to model for us and to teach us what it means to live as a citizen in the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus did. Listen to the words in John 14. Chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 14, verse 6 says this. This is, again, Jesus teaching his disciples. He says this. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Again, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, I am the way, meaning Jesus gives us a way, a pathway as to how we are to conduct our lives. And he says he's the truth, meaning that Jesus teaches us how to think rightly. And because of those things, Jesus can then make the claim that he is the life, meaning that when you combine these things, when you combine the way that Jesus lives and the way that Jesus teaches, and the work of Jesus in his ministry and eventually on the cross, because of all of that, every person who wants it can have the full life that Jesus offers. It's truly incredible. That statement alone is incredible. And for this reason, for this reason, it is assumed that becoming a disciple of Jesus will lead you to change the way you think and the way you live. There's no way around it. And it's not just any way of thinking, and it's not just any way of living, 
but living as Jesus did, thinking as Jesus thought. Now, a change in thinking and living was indeed a part, an assumed part of everyone's conversion story for the remainder of church history, from the time that Jesus was crucified and rose again and commissioned the disciples, kind of got that little mini history lesson. He said, go out and teach them everything. It was assumed then that if someone was going to be a Christian or follow the way, as it's called in the early church, that they would have to change their life. And that assumption was true until about 100 years ago, okay? So for almost 2,000 years, it was assumed that if you were going to apprentice to Jesus, that you would adopt his teaching and his way of life, and it would change how you live from that moment on. In fact, I was reading an ancient document, and I don't say that other than to tell you that I'm a nerd, okay? My wife was making fun of me earlier, like, ooh, you made an ancient document. Um, <laughs> yes, I was reading an ancient document titled The Apostolic Tradition of Hippolytus of Rome, okay? And this was written around 215 AD, so a couple hundred years basically after Jesus um, has ascended to heaven and the church is functioning. And it's actually a set of writings that record church order, like how the church is meant to function. So if you're interested in that, you too can go read it. You can find it online. It's totally available for free, okay? But I found one particular part very interesting, and I wanted to share it with you, which is why I bring it up. Here's what it said about people who were considering a conversion to Christianity, okay, or the way. Catechumens, now, just right off the bat, that is a person who is considering the conversion to Christianity. They entered what was called the catechumenate, and it was a training program that would lead them to the understanding they needed to make a really smart, well-informed decision. Do I want to be part of the faith, or do I not? And this is one of the lines. It says, catechumens will hear the word for three years. Yet if someone is earnest and preserves well in the matter, it is not that time is judged, but the conduct. So again, a catechumen was a person deciding, do I want to be a Christian? And they would officially, they would enroll almost, as you would say in a class or a program, into this pattern of discipleship where they would get around people who had been Christians for a longer amount of time, and they would actually disciple underneath them so that they could learn what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus, and so that the church could observe and measure their readiness to be baptized into the community of faith. Now, this model of discipleship made sure that a person was well aware of how their life would change as a result of their conversion. And it lasted up to three years. Three years that you would hear the word of God and live amongst other Christians before you were even allowed to be considered into the faith. Three years of training. Three years of listening to teachings. Three years of visiting widows and orphans and serving in your community before you could be baptized, which again was the public declaration and affirmation of their faith. And all of this was done because they believed that the way a person thinks and lives will change 
as they apprenticed to Jesus. In their minds, it was unavoidable that a person's behavior and their life would change as a result of them following Jesus. And part of the reason, if not the primary reason they thought that way, is because Jesus actually said that. In Matthew chapter 7, right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, in verse 21, just a few verses before Jesus' remarks about adopting the practices and being like a wise person, he says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus wanted his disciples to understand this very important truth. There will be evidence of a person's transformation. There will be fruit in their life of a person's transformation, and it will come in the form of doing the will of the Father. Now, I say all of that to return to the verse, the first two verses of Romans chapter 12, which we read at the beginning, and I'll read them to you again. It says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Do you see how Paul connects his teaching to Jesus' words that those who do the will of my Father will be in the kingdom of heaven. He says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Do not act as the rest of the world acts, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It starts here, the way that you think, to think about Jesus and his teachings and his commands. And then you will know by the power of the Holy Spirit through salvation how to interpret how the Father and his will are lived out in the kingdom of heaven. So that's how it was for almost 2,000 years. But something happened in the recent American evangelical church, okay? The gospel, this is what happened from my estimation, from my reading, from church historians, from lots of smart, smart people besides me. The gospel began to be presented in a way where salvation was separated from transformation. Again, the gospel was being presented in a way where salvation was separate from transformation, meaning that someone could be saved. They could receive salvation without transformation, and they never need to intend to think or act any differently than they do before Jesus saves them. So in essence, maybe this was your experience, you could raise your hand, you could pray the prayer, and you're good. But the problem with this version of the gospel is it's not the version of the gospel that Jesus teaches. It's not what Jesus taught and not the way that he modeled. Now I want to read to you Romans 10 verses 9 through 10 because there is some truth to that. And I want to make sure I'm very clear about this. 
Romans 10 verses 9 and 10 says this. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Okay? For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. So it is true that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart in the Son of God, that Jesus is the Son of God, then you will be saved. But that's not the final step. That's the first step. Do you see the difference there? That's not the culmination. Raise your hand, say the prayer, good to go, go about your life as you please. But instead, that's the moment where the Holy Spirit changes your life, where your salvation is secure, and you then go and orient your life around the teachings and practices of Jesus. So I return once again to Romans 12, just the first verse this time. It says, therefore, <coughs> I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your true and proper worship. Now, as it's often said in scripture, if there is a therefore, then you must find out why that therefore is therefore. Okay, okay. This therefore that is at the very beginning of Romans chapter 12, verse one, is actually connecting two very big important ideas. The first one is that verse that I read to you from Romans 10, where salvation is given freely to those who believe and declare that Jesus is Lord. That is true. And it's available to both in this time period and going forward, Jew and Gentile, meaning insider and outsider, basically said it's available to everyone. Okay? That's the beauty of the gospel. It is given freely by the grace of God to anyone who accepts it, they need to believe in Jesus and declare that he is Lord. That's the first idea. And then you go two chapters later, Romans 12, 1, and it's the second big idea, the reason that the therefore is there. And it's this, as a result of a merciful God who gives salvation freely to those who believe in Jesus as the Son of God, you should then offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Okay, let's talk about that. Now, a sacrifice can be a scary word, obviously, right? We're not sacrificing people up here. Rather, what we're talking about, thankfully, right? right? We're, all, we're all on board with that, right? Okay, I just wanted to make sure. It means that you are now living under the authority of Jesus. You are no longer your own God, but you are following the God, the creator of the universe, who sent his son Jesus to model for us a way of life that is changing us through the power of the Holy Spirit, through modeling our life after his teaching and his practices, we become new people transformed as living sacrifices. And so the result of your conversion is indeed salvation through Jesus, which results in an apprenticeship pattern where you change from the inside out, where your life begins to look different, where you are transformed into the image of Jesus. Okay, so what does this mean for Foundation Church, okay? 
We've been talking about this vision series. I think this is the last week. I think this is it, okay? Foundation Church is part of a tradition of churches that have preached the gospel for we will turn 100 years, our denomination will, in just the next decade. And our tradition has seen lives changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. We've seen people come to know Jesus and change their life because of what Jesus has inspired in them, what the Holy Spirit has done. And this tradition has embodied the Great Commission, planting churches all over the Western world, efforting to change and and author theology classes in the Eastern world. I mean, this is a tradition that I am proud to be a part of. We are thankful to be part of our tribe, the Protestant evangelical tribe. And we do value conversion, and we celebrate salvation, and have been focused on discipleship. But I will say this, in some ways, at times, in the recent past, the fruit of our tradition does not reflect the heart of our tradition. Let me say that again. In times recently, the fruit of our tradition who have celebrated salvation and championed conversions and discipled people and planted churches with the best of intentions, the fruit of our tradition has not always reflected the heart of our tradition. And here's what I mean. A recent study done by the Barna Group, which they're the leading, the leading researchers on church trends in the West, America, North America, kind of all over the Western world, they're the leading researchers, say that approximately 63% of Americans self-identify as a Christian. 63%. That's a pretty high number. It's more than a majority. Although it is a declining number, that's still a high number. But, so that's people who self-identify, but the number of people who they do their best to identify as living as apprentices to Jesus, modeling their life after the teaching and practices of Jesus is at 4%. So we have 63% who self-identify as Christian, and we have 4% of people who are actually taking what Jesus said and commanded us to do, and they're actually applying that to their life. Now, This is what disciple experts, discipleship experts, church experts, church history people, this is what the group of people who study these things call a discipleship gap. Maybe you've heard that term, maybe you haven't, but the difference between people who say they are something and people who live as though they are something, and there's that big of a gap in between, that's a problem. It's a problem. That's what it is. It's just a problem. And regardless of who or what is to blame for that gap, I believe And our team believes that the church will play a vital role, a vital, essential, primary role in correcting this trend. Again, the church will play a vital, essential role in correcting this trend. And the primary way that that trend will be corrected is to intentionally and strategically lead people to know and follow Jesus, to be apprentices of Jesus. Now, Dallas Willard's a famous thinker, theologian, professor. He wrote this in his book called The Great Omission. 
It's a powerful observation. It says it's the greatest issue facing the world today with all of its heartbreaking needs, meaning he's taking inventory of everything that's an issue. The greatest of those is whether those who by profession or culture are identified as Christians will become disciples, meaning students, apprentices, or practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of heaven into every corner of human existence. I think he's right. I think he's right. Now, any wise person would tell you that you cannot keep repeating the same behavior and expect a different result, right? We know that. If you keep doing the same thing, you're going to get the same results. And so the modern American church, for the most part, with the best of intentions, the best of intentions, from my perspective, has been moving in a similar direction for the last 100 years. And the fruit of that direction, the strategy, the trajectory, the culture, whatever you want to call it, is that 4% of people are practicing the way of Jesus, are living their life as people who are transformed by the renewing of their mind, as Paul would say in Romans 12. So if we want different results, then we need to take a different approach, right? If we want different results, we need to take a different approach. But it's actually not a new approach. It's actually a very old approach, steeped deeply in church tradition. It's a model of discipleship that Jesus laid out for us. And I would say that we are in need of a discipleship remodel. Now, why do I say remodel? Because we are not starting from scratch, okay? We are actually building on as Every Christian has attempted to, since Jesus was on earth, we are building upon the teachings of Jesus, and those teachings have guided the church for the last 2,000 plus years, and we don't need to completely tear everything down or deconstruct everything because I believe that would be reckless, but we do need to update our goals and our strategies related to church-wide discipleship. So a few weeks back, our team introduced our church's Rule of life. On your seat, you should have a little bookmark that has 10 statements about the type of discipleship, the type of church that we want to become. If you're not familiar with a rule of life or what it is, I want to read this helpful definition to you, and then we'll get to the statements in just a moment. A rule of life is a schedule, a set of practices and relational rhythms that help us create space in our busy world to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what he did. To live, as he says in John 10, 10, the full life in his kingdom and in alignment with our deepest passions and priorities. Now, everyone has a rule of life, okay? This is not new. You might just not call it a rule of life. Your rule of life is either intentionally designed or unintentionally pressed upon you by your job and your habits and your preferences, but everyone has a rule of life. And actually, every organization, especially every church, has a functional rule of life. Now, on paper, the rule of life is a set of practices and relational rhythms that should lead us to achieve our mission. Now, what is our mission? Great question. Glad you asked, you brilliant people. It has been 
and will be and will always continue to be to make disciples of Jesus, just as he commissioned us in Matthew 28. That is our mission. That's every church's mission who believes in Jesus is to follow the Great Commission and go make disciples. And what's beautiful about Foundation Church is it's one unique expression of that common mission. Right? There's churches all over this city, this country, and this world who are doing the same thing in their own way, uniquely wired the way that God has made them because of the people who constitute the church to worship as he's made them to worship. That's awesome. I love that. And our common mission is to make disciples, disciples of Jesus. But here's the thing. As our team as our leadership team and our board and the people who carry leadership roles around this church, as we examined our church's rule of life, we arrived at this conclusion. Our old rule of life was laid out in this way, and I'm going to put it up on the screen for you. It was to attend a Sunday gathering, to give your time by serving, to give your money through tithe and offerings, and to join a community group. Okay, I'm just going to say off the bat. I love all of those things, okay? I love all of those things. It's not like we're getting away from those things. There are flashes of greatness in this rule of life, and they are not completely wrong. But from our perspective, based off of what we know through the teachings of Jesus, they are an incomplete rule of life for a church community, right? They're good things, but they're not a complete rule of life. This rule of life, as it's laid out for you there, is actually designed to sustain the church as an organization, but it's not necessarily designed to raise fully mature apprentices of Jesus. And I don't have time to break it down, so I'm not going to, but this is actually not in the best interest of the individuals or the church, because the church is the individuals who make up the church. Right? So sustaining an organization rather than building apprentices, fully mature disciples of Jesus is not in the best interest even of our organization. But if you design a rule of life that leads to every person wholeheartedly following Jesus, discipling to Jesus, apprenticing under Jesus, then you actually have a best case scenario where each person who is following Jesus brings their collective desires, talents, and passions together to become what we are, which is the local church. That's best case scenario. So we've remodeled our community rule of life to guide people towards that aim, to guide people towards apprenticing to Jesus so that we will become a group of people who are laser focused on apprenticing to Jesus, on learning the teachings of Jesus, and learning the practices of Jesus, and implementing those things into our life. And then out of that apprenticeship to Jesus, out of that following of Jesus' lead, we will become like the living sacrifices Paul talks about in Romans 12, collectively pursuing the kingdom of heaven. Now, will we continue to gather? Of course. We're going to do this. I love gathering with you all. Will we serve? Yes. Will we give? Yes. But out of a life rooted in discipleship to Jesus. 
So our primary goal is to apprentice to Jesus as individuals and as a church collectively. And our new rule of life is designed to intentionally move each and every person in that direction at a speed with with which they are comfortable and with help and direction from those around you. And so I want to just take a few moments and I want to read these to you again. They're going to be on our website. You have the bookmark now. You've seen all of these are not new unless you haven't been here. But I want to read them to you again because I want to highlight the type of community that we believe we are meant to come based off the teachings and practices of Jesus. So number one, they'll be on your screen as well if that font is too small for you in front of you. We want to be a community of rest in a culture of hurry and exhaustion through the practice of Sabbath. Number two, we want to be a community of connection with God in a culture of distraction and escapism through the practice of prayer. We want to be a community of courageous fidelity and orthodoxy. It's okay if those words don't make sense to you now, they will in time. In a culture of ideological compromise through the practice of scripture. We want to be a community of peace and quiet. In a culture of anxiety and noise through the practice of solitude. We want to be a community of holiness in a culture of indulgence and immorality through the practice of fasting. We want to be a community of love and deep work in a culture of individualism and superficiality through the practice of community. We want to be a community of contentment in a culture of consumerism through the practice of generosity. We want to be a community of justice, mercy, and reconciliation in a culture of self-interest and division through the practice of service. We want to be a community of dignity in a culture of accusation and shame through the practice of vulnerability. And we want to be a community of hospitality in a culture of hostility through the practice of witness. Now, these statements reflect our intentions to not only hear the words of Jesus, but to put them into practice, to take the truth of Jesus, as he says in John 14, and the way of Jesus, as he says in John 14, and chase after that life that Jesus came to give us, to promise us that full life. Because again, we believe the way a person thinks and lives will, not might, will change as they apprentice to Jesus. Jesus designed and taught on these practices. Jesus modeled these practices through scripture and Jesus has called us to follow him by knowing what he said and doing what he did. And so therefore, Foundation Church will be pouring a ton of energy into helping people achieve these practices, to fight the type of culture that is running away from Jesus, to help people run towards Jesus and become the type of people who are transformed into the likeness of Jesus, as 2 Corinthians 3 says. And if you're not there yet in your personal life, that's okay. Because we're thrilled that you're here either way. We are. We're absolutely thrilled that you're here. You're always welcome here, but I want you to know something from the bottom of my heart, it will be so hard for you to resist the way of Jesus 
because it's what we're about. We're about apprenticing, discipling to Jesus. And for those of us who are already in, who are doing that, the way of Jesus will change you. You will not remain the same, and that's a good thing. It's a really, really good thing. It's gonna be an incredible journey, and I want you to not forget these two things. You are surrounded right now by a group of people who are on the same journey. And so we're all gonna wrestle with the difficulties and the beauties of it together, and you are surrounded by a group of people who are going to cheer you on as you make your way along this journey, and I love that. I'm psyched by that, and I hope that you are too. I hope that you are too. So I'm gonna pray for us, and then I'm gonna lead us through communion, and then we're gonna sing one more song. And if you ever have any questions about this kind of stuff, and where we're going, and who we wanna be, myself, Pastor Jessica, anyone on our team, we would love to answer those questions. But I think the most important thing that we can do, and this is why I talked about it last week, is be a people of prayer. Because these things are going to require that we change, not only how we think, but how we live. And it's for the better, but man, change hurts sometimes, doesn't it? Reorienting our life around the the ways and the practices and the teachings of Jesus is not always going to be the easiest thing, but it is the best thing. It is the best thing, I promise you that. So in just a moment, like I said, we're going to receive communion. And if you would like prayer, then Mike, who's standing right over there underneath the storm sign, if you are in the middle of your storm right now, which I know a lot of us are, and we're probably either on the front end or the back end or the middle of one, no matter what, Mike would love to pray for you. He would love to pray for you, pray with you. And if you're not comfortable going to Mike, which I don't understand because he's literally the kindest person I know, you can write that on your card and we will be praying for you, okay? We will be praying for you. So in just a moment, I'm going to pray for the communion elements and I just want to take a moment and remind you that these are these tangible, the juice and the cracker are this tangible way that we receive God's grace. The reason that we do it and the reason that Jesus commanded us to do it as often as we can is because he wants us to be reminded that primarily at the root of all of this is God's grace. The goal is not to practice the way of Jesus. The goal is to receive the grace of Jesus through the practices. Does that make sense? The goal of remembering what Jesus did is that he did all of the work for us. We're simply coming along and entering into the full life that he so desperately wants to give us. And receiving communion is a tangible way to remember that. And so if you could do me a favor and stand up. I'm going to pray for them. And then after I pray for these elements, I would like you to go with your family or your friends, whoever you're sitting with, Grab a cracker, grab a cup of juice, receive the elements, come back to your seat and join us as we sing this last song. God, thank you for a reminder like communion, this tangible, beautiful reminder of how good you are, of your grace and your mercy in our life. And Jesus, as we move towards apprenticing, discipling underneath you, Jesus, I pray that you would give us a reminder 
This is nothing that we can earn, but it's this beautiful gift that you've given us, that you paid the bill for our sins and you made it possible for us to receive salvation. So God, I pray that we would receive that. In Jesus' name, amen. Feel free to grab an element, return to your seat. We're gonna sing one more song.